Welcome to Parkside Green's Midweek Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve. It's a new year, and I am thrilled for our new study in Philippians. You know, of all the churches that Paul founded, and there were many that he founded over the years, he had a uniquely positive relationship with the Philippians. And uh, when we take the 10 minutes or so it's required to read his letter to them, we find that in contrast to several of his other letters in which he's upset and he's correcting them, you think about Galatians or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, in this letter, Philippians, it's just a very positive and friendly letter. Uh, in fact, scholars of ancient rhetoric note that Philippians has several characteristics of what is called a letter of friendship. It's actually a category of letter in the ancient world, a letter of friendship. Paul uses affectionate language here. He knows how hard it is to be absent from them, away from his Philippian friends. Uh, he's concerned for their welfare, right? And he appreciates all the ways they have looked after his needs time and again, all the signs of friendship. But as we read the letter, we also find elements of moral exhortation as well, right? Paul's wants to persuade the Christians there in Philippi to follow Jesus' example by humbly serving others. And he calls on them actually to follow his own example in, in focusing their lives primarily on knowing Christ, right? Compared with knowing Christ, everything else is rubbish. So if you want to sound super smart, you can call Philippians a hortatory letter of friendship. <laughs> It's just a scholarly way of putting together the exhortation piece and the friendship piece. But remember, here's the key thing. Paul's friendship with the Philippians is in Christ. It's in Christ that they're friends. Uh, he, Christ was really the glue to their relationship right from the very start, right? And we see this in Acts chapter 16. And it's always a good idea, by the way, to study Acts and see how it sheds light on a letter of Paul when you're studying it, right? If you want to study 1 Thessalonians, look at Acts 17 and the start of the church in Thessalonica. If you want to study Corinthians, look at Acts 18 and how Paul founded the church at Corinth. And likewise here in Acts 16, we see that somehow the Holy Spirit forbids Paul and his co-workers from preaching the gospel in Asia. And in Bithynia, that's what they wanted to do, but the Spirit prohibited them from doing that, so they go to Troas instead. And even just that little piece from Acts 16 is a good reminder to me and maybe to you as well that when God overrules our plans, it's because there's something better. And there certainly was. In the night, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man begging him to come over to Macedonia and help them. And Paul and his entourage together conclude that the vision is, in fact, God's calling for them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. And they obey that call right away. Right? It says immediately they headed off to Macedonia. The, the group travels to Philippi, which is a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, Thessalonica was the capital, right? But Philippi was a leading city. It's kind of like in Ohio here, Columbus is the capital, but certainly Cleveland is a leading city. And uh, we can see here that Paul's mission strategy involves planting churches in major urban centers. He's going to plant a church in Philippi and one in Thessalonica. 
as well. So Paul's group stays in Philippi for several days, it says, and on the Sabbath, they go to a likely spot for prayer down by the riverside, maybe because there was no synagogue in Philippi, perhaps. We can't be sure. But they speak to the women who were there at the riverside, uh, uh, probably a gathering of Jewish ladies uh, who had gotten together for Sabbath prayer. And the Lord does this marvelous thing of opening Lydia's heart to pay attention to the message that Paul brings to she's already a worshiper of God, but now God opens her heart to respond to the gospel message from Paul. And, And Lydia and the members of her household are baptized. She ends up persuading Paul and his group to stay at her house, perhaps a wealthy lady, a dealer in purple goods. And with these new converts, Lydia and her household, the gospel has now spread for the very first time to Europe. It's a beautiful story. But not everyone in Philippi is so receptive to the gospel, right? When Paul exercises, he drives out a fortune-telling spirit from a slave girl, her owners oppose Paul and Silas. And then the marketplace crowd kind of joins in the attack, and the authorities end up having Paul and Silas uh, stripped of their garments and beaten with rods and thrown into prison. So it's not looking so good. But Paul and Silas, they're totally undaunted. They're completely unfazed. It's amazing. They just pray and they sing to God until around midnight, at which time an earthquake, not an everyday occurrence, in fact, it calls it a great earthquake, frees all the prisoners from their chains and their cells, busts open the doors. Well, the jailer comes to, he thinks everybody's gone, he's responsible for them. He's about to commit suicide, and Paul stops him and says, no, no, wait. And he also explains to him how the jailer and his household can be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, which they do amazingly. And then they're baptized, and there's more Philippian converts to Christ. The next day, the Philippian magistrates, the local authorities, are fearfully alarmed to learn that Oh, they had unwittingly, unknowingly actually mistreated Roman citizens without giving them a proper trial. And that's a big no-no. So the officials apologetically escort Paul and Silas from the prison, to which apparently they had returned willingly, and they request that they just leave the city. Would you mind leaving? We don't want any more disturbances here. After encouraging Lydia and the believers in her household, Paul and his companions do leave Thessalonica, leave Philippi for Thessalonica in order to plant a church there. I mean, they're just going to continue to do the work of God wherever he opens the door. So as I step back and look at the big picture of what we can learn from Acts 16, the Philippian church started with a few women who were gathered for prayer and a desperate jailer. That's the makings of the Philippian church. God was at work when Paul joined a prayer meeting, and God was at work when Paul was imprisoned, likewise. And the church also started with Paul and his companions obeying God's call. They obeyed immediately that vision that God gave them. They shared the good news boldly with the ladies and with the jailer, and they suffered for the sake of the gospel in their beating and imprisonment. 
And the church at Philippi also started with the Lord's work, right? The Lord opening people's heart to believe. But that was just the start. That's just the start. Paul returned at least once to encourage the believers at Philippi about six years later. We read about that in Acts 20. And then maybe another six years later, he wrote this letter to them. And after writing the letter, in fact, Paul intended to visit them once he was released from prison. So here we learn four times in the first chapter of Paul's letter that he was imprisoned at the time he wrote the letter. And you see that it seems to unfold like this. Paul is in prison and he receives word that there's some disunity in the Philippian church. And in his letter, he wants to exhort them to agree with each other in the Lord, be of the same mind in the Lord. Secondly, he wants to encourage the Philippian believers to stand firm in the Lord and and to contend for the gospel and be willing to suffer for Christ in the face of those who oppose them. Thirdly, he wants to update the Philippians on his current situation, why he's in chains and how God is using that. And he wants to reassure them that, listen, God has mercifully brought their friend Epaphroditus out of his near-death illness. So not to worry about him, And then fourthly and lastly, Paul wants to thank the Philippians. Thank you for your repeated financial support of me over the years. He says a couple of places in the letter. So Paul had many purposes for this short letter. And I think we're starting to gather the context uh, from which it emerged and in which it was written. And we're ready to launch in to our study of the first two verses of Philippians. Let me begin by reading them. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul follows customary ancient letter-writing conventions here, right? He, He names himself as the writer, He identifies the Philippians as the recipients, and he offers an initial greeting. So nothing revolutionary here. Paul's the author. Timothy is mentioned as his important associate. Timothy was there at the founding of the church. Uh, We read about that in Acts 16. And Paul hoped to send Timothy back to Philippi very soon. Read about that a couple of times in chapter 2 of the letter. But Timothy, I think, should not be seen as a co-author because Paul uses the first-person singular, I, not we, 51 times in the rest of the letter. It's clearly Paul who is writing to the Philippians, perhaps with Timothy as his secretary or his companion uh, in the gospel. At any rate, Paul describes himself and Timothy as servants or slaves, it could be rendered as well, of Christ Jesus, right? Servants are slaves who belong to Christ. They owe their entire allegiance to Jesus as their Lord and as their master. And I think, interestingly, by naming himself and Timothy together as servants, Paul might be also foreshadowing a bit his later exhortation for the Philippians together to follow Jesus' example and his attitude and his action as humble servants. Letters written, you'll note, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. 
Let's break that down a little bit. As saints, all Christians, not just the special ones, all Christians are God's holy people, separated from evil, set apart for service to God. And you'll notice too here that Christians are not saints by our own merit. No, we are saints in Christ Jesus, by being united with Jesus, by faith in him, especially his death and resurrection. And if we look at this choice of words to describe the author and the audience of the letter, it's pretty striking, right? Think about it. We might have expected the great apostle Paul to identify himself as Saint Paul writing to Christ's servants in Philippi. Instead, he identifies himself as Servant Paul, who is writing to the saints at Philippi. He's the servant, and they're the saints here, right? And it's a good reminder, I think, to us that even Christ's special, ordained apostles, his authorized messengers, even they lead as servants. And even ordinary Christian believers, like those at Philippi, are saints. They're holy and set apart for God. So two things we know are true of these believers. Number one, they're saints. They're those who are set apart and made holy in Christ Jesus. And secondly, they're at Philippi. (laughs) They have to work out what it means to be holy saints in the setting of the Roman colony and leading Macedonian city of Philippi. I mean, how could they shine as lights in the world right there in Philippi? That's their challenge, just as we must ask the Lord to show us how to shine our lights, how to live as holy saints here in Green or Northeast Ohio. And within the larger group of all the Philippian believers to whom the letter is addressed, Paul makes special mention of overseers and deacons. They're church leaders who exercise special responsibilities. Overseers or bishops or elders or pastors all seem to be interchangeable in the New Testament. Overseers are those who watch over and they govern and they care for and they uh, protect and they nourish the congregation of God's flock. Whereas deacons are those officers who minister. In fact, the word deacon means minister. They minister to the church by doing practical works of mercy and service. I was thinking, maybe this week, perhaps it's a good week to thank our elders and our deacons for all that they do in governing and overseeing and serving the church. Well, back to his uh, Paul's greeting. He follows, certainly, the letter-writing conventions of his day, but you notice how he fills his greeting with unmistakably Christian content by wishing the Philippians grace and peace. Grace, of course, is God's free, unmerited love to sinners. And peace is that, that not only that personal, but also that social, relational harmony that flows out of our reconciliation with God the Father through Jesus Christ. When God gives grace to his people, the result is this blessed peace, right? And by using this rich Christian vocabulary in verse 2, Paul turns a a salutation into a gospel reminder. He transforms a, a standard greeting 
into actually a blessing. And I was thinking about how some of you do that, you know, in your voicemail messages, turn what could be just a, a regular sort of greeting into something much more. And I think that's so cool, a witness. Well, Paul reminds his readers that these blessings they have of grace and peace, they come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? They are the ultimate source. God the Father and God the Son are the ultimate source of any grace and peace that we experience. And all of us who are in Christ share a common experience of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, our unity together here at Parkside Church Green comes from having God as our common Father and Jesus as our common Lord. And you'll notice lastly just how Christ-centered this letter is right from the start, right? Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. And the Philippian believers are saints in Christ Jesus. And Paul wishes them grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God the Father. Christ appears three times, Jesus Christ three times in just the first two verses. And we know already then this is going to be a very Christ-centered letter. It's from servants of Christ to saints in Christ, wishing them grace and peace from Christ. I'm already feeling encouraged, and we've just studied the first two verses. Well, coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday, you'll be meeting with your small groups to catch up and learn from and hopefully encourage each other. And then at the end of next week, I'll be sending you the teaching by video or audio and the study materials as well on chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, which, believe me, are filled with a lot of uplifting, encouraging words of God. Well, let me close our time now by asking the Lord to guide and bless our study throughout this winter and spring of 2021. Father, we thank you for Paul, for Timothy and Silas, and the rest of their group. And we thank you for their obedience, for their boldness in sharing the gospel with Lydia and the jailer and others there in Philippi. We praise you, Lord, for opening their hearts to believe the message of salvation in Jesus. And we praise you that Paul would act as a servant of Jesus by writing to these saints in Jesus and wishing them grace and peace from Jesus and from you, Father. This coming week, we ask you to inspire us, Lord, to, to live as servants of Jesus and share with others the grace and peace that you've so generously given to us. Help us to learn, to love one another in our small groups, and then to spread that learning from your word and that love to others who haven't experienced your amazing grace and peace. Thank you that we can be ambassadors of Jesus, and it's through him that we pray. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.